RPC Radio. Radio. Hello and welcome to Money Covered, a podcast from RPC aimed at those dealing with complaints and claims in the financial services sector and risk managers within that sector. My name is Rachel Healy. I am one of the co-hosts on this podcast and we'll be talking to some guests about key developments in the financial services area over the last month. The podcast will discuss topical issues of relevance to those dealing with complaints and claims against FCA regulated entities such as IFAs, asset managers, SIPs and brokers, TPR regulated entities, including pension trustees, as well as issues for offshore professionals and accountants. With a lot of ground to cover, I welcome our guests to the podcast today. Welcome to our returning guests, Zoe Maligari and Lucy Thorne on the podcast today, 5th of May 2022 on a day when Liverpool continue towards the quadruple and the day of the local elections. Today's focus is going to be on the FCA's business plan and an update on where we are with the British Steel Pension Scheme Consumer Redress Scheme and what the SIP market can expect now that the Supreme Court has refused permission to appeal in Adams and Carey. But before turning to Lucy and Zoe, it's worth also briefly covering some other topics of particular relevance for listeners of April 2022. So first of all, we had the FCA publishing its Data for Skilled Persons reports for Q4 of 2021-2022, with 11 skilled persons reports and over a third relating to the investment management sector. HMRC also used its new powers for the first time to name and shame two tax avoidance schemes and warn current and potential users of the large tax bills they may face if they engage with them. And the High Court also refused permission in a judicial review challenge of FOS involving final salary pension transfer advice. So, first of all, turning to Zoe. Zoe, before we get into the detail of the FCA business plan, can you first set out for listeners why the FCA produces a business plan? and what the objective is of that document. The FCA has produced its annual business plan as April, setting out the work they'll do over the next 12 months, as well as ambitions for the next three years, against which they can be held accountable to support the delivery of these outcomes. The FCA produces a plan to set out how they measure their own performance, with the aim to becoming a more proactive regulator that is not afraid to test the limits of its own powers so that they can adapt in the interest of consumers, markets and the economy. The objective of a plan is for the FCA to become outcomes focused, so that they can monitor emerging emerging issues and allocate resources appropriately to ensure that they respond more quickly to market needs. The FCA previously structured activities around the sectors they regulate, but to align with their strategy, which is to see a more innovative, adaptive and assertive FCA, which is tougher on their own performance, the FCA are using a plan to identify the issues in front of them, so they are focused on results rather than actually being driven by processes. This is to make sure that they're adapting to important changes and reflects the reality that markets aren't static. So the business plan lists three objectives. Can you briefly set out, sorry for listeners, what they are? The first objective is reducing and preventing serious harm. Um, the aim of this is to protect consumers from harm that authorised firms can cause by addressing poor treatment and tackling fraud. 
and ensuring it doesn't happen in the first place. The second objective is setting and testing higher standards. And this objective is fundamental to the FCA's outcomes-based approach. It's about considering the impact the, the actions of authorised firms have on consumers and the market. And the aim is to ensure that all firms consider the impact of their products and services on consumers, that they're clear on what is required of them so that they can adopt the same high standards and deliver good outcomes. By firms having a greater understanding on how they should treat consumers, this will then lead to a few future rule changes, which should then lower the costs for firms. The third objective is promoting competition and positive change. This is to ensure better consumer market outcomes in light of the UK's departure from the EU. So the first objective, reducing and preventing serious harm, I'm pretty sure we can all agree that that should be an objective of any regulator. But what does the business plan say here about what the FCA is planning to do over the next few years? So examples of what the FCA is planning to do to reduce harm includes dealing with problem firms, such as removing firms who don't meet their minimum standards from financial services markets to create a better functioning market. They also be improving the redress framework so it's fairer for consumers and firms in the global context. It means that consumers have access to redress when things have already gone wrong. The FCA aimed to do this by identifying potential problems earlier and carrying out redress exercises with firms so they quickly remedy harm so that consumers have access to fair redress before firms actually fail. The FCA also plans to improve the oversight of appointed representatives by increasing their supervision work to reduce poor conduct and to increase the amount of information they receive on principles and ARs so they can better identify which business models pose the greatest risk. So perhaps an indication there that the FCA plans to be a bit more interventionalist when it comes to redress and also perhaps putting a bit of the onus on the principles given the oversight and changes to the appointed representative regime. So let's see what happens there. But the second objective is then setting and testing higher standards. So what does the business plan say about the FCA's work here? So the FCA says that it will be putting consumers' needs first, as consumers need to make informed decisions. But some firms present information which is misleading or sell products that are not right for them, which causes harm and erodes consumer trust. And to address this, the FCA has proposed introducing a new consumer duty, which would require firms to act in good faith and ensure they provide products and services to consumers that are fit for purpose and provide fair value and that they have the information to make informed decisions. The FCA also says that it will be enabling consumers to help themselves. So this is more about the digital services that firms provide and ensuring that consumers get good information to make good investment decisions so that firms are better at actually explaining investment risks to consumers. Through targeted action, the FCA aims to make sure that adverts and promotions are clear, fair and not misleading. They will continue to use their invest to improve consumer understanding and reduce the risk appetite and the actual risks associated with investments that they choose. They will also continue to issue warnings to consumers about unauthorised businesses and scam firms that are involved in investment fraud. So interestingly, in this particular area, there are quite a few examples in the FCA's business plan about what they're doing or have done to achieve this second objective including interesting commentary around lifetime mortgages or otherwise known as equity release, funeral plans, which the FCA is going to shortly be responsible for supervising, and also more broadly in relation to consumer investments. So can you just take listeners through what the FCA are saying about these three particular areas? 
So for lifetime mortgages, um, so a lifetime mortgage is a type of equity release where you borrow money secured against your home, which allows you to release some of the value of your property tax-free. The FCA says that given the significance of these decisions for consumers, they are considering the work they need to do to ensure that the market is working well, uh, that consumers are suitably advised so that consumers understand both the short-term and long-term implications of these decisions. This includes following up on their earlier finding about poor quality advice, where advisors were making recommendations without taking into account individuals' personal circumstances. As a result, the FCA says it may check that standards among intermediaries are giving advice um, have improved. For funeral plans, the FCA will focus on making sure that funeral plans offered to consumers meet their needs while offering fair value. They aim to carry out rigorous supervision of firms in the market and to ensure that firms have sufficient resources to ensure they deliver the funerals for which consumers are paid. Within the first year of regulation, they will also conduct an in-depth analysis of the newly authorised portfolio of these firms. They will then identify the key risks of harm that firms may pose and set out how they expect these to be managed. For consumer investments, the FCA wants to create the right environment for consumers to invest so that they can make effective investment decisions and understand the risks they are taking and the regulatory protections they can expect. The FCA says it does not want to restrict consumers from investing. It wants to make sure that they get the advice and support they need. With this, they will consider the most appropriate regulatory changes so that it's simpler for firms to help consumers investing in straightforward products like stocks and shares, ISO wrappers. The FCA will also introduce a regime that strengthens requirements on firms marketing high-risk investments to consumers so that they only access high-risk investments knowingly and are protected from scams. This follows on from previous work to address harm in the market, such as banning the mass marketing of speculative mini-bonds. The FCA will also review their financial advisor prudential requirements to help firm resources. This is linked to a wider set of measures to improve the compensation framework to ensure that it remains appropriate and proportionate. This includes their consultation on a redress scheme for former members of the British Steel Pension Scheme. So as you say there, Zoe, perhaps lots of FCA supervisory action in the lifetime mortgage area and funeral plans to look forward to over the next year, as well as some commentary around what the FCA has done and is doing in relation to consumer investments, perhaps slightly building on that first objective of being a bit more interventionalist and putting in place redress schemes where they see things that they don't approve of. That then takes us finally to the third objective, promoting competition and positive change, where there are quite some grand objectives, to say the least, in relation to what the FCA proposed to do, including strengthening the UK's position in global wholesale markets. But there are also some examples of the FCA's work on the ground with respect to asset managers and the very fashionable crypto area, So what does the business plan say about these? For asset management, the plan says that the FCA supervision will focus on how asset managers ensure fair value for consumers and that investors are offered products that meet their needs. The FCA wants to ensure that the regulatory framework sets clear standards for the international market, whilst maintaining high standards of consumer protection to strengthen the UK's position as one of the leading markets of choice. With this, they will increase their supervisory focus to ensure that asset managers present the environmental, social and governance properties of products in a way that is clear and fair. They will work with the Treasury and industry to identify opportunities for change from any transfer of responsibilities under the future regulatory framework. So 
that the rules better suit UK markets and reflect our new position outside the EU. They will also collaborate with other global regulators on topics such as fund liquidity to help develop international standards. For crypto assets, um, the FCA says that these are becoming increasingly incorporated into existing financial services. And so risks to consumers must be appropriated appropriately mitigated, which may require further regulation as the industry evolves. For instance, the FCA welcomes the Treasury's consultation in 2021, confirming that stable coins used as payments will be brought under the FCA's regulation, and so they are planning to consult on the regulation of stable coins later this year. Equally, the FCA is working closely with the government and other parties through Crypto Assets Task Force to design a UK approach to regulation that balances innovation and competition alongside the need for orderly markets and consumer protection. In the meantime, the FCA will continue to assess that firms are adequately taking account of crypto asset risks and making it clear to consumers when they are interacting with unregulated services. So perhaps the the first bit about asset management, although the word isn't used in the FCA's business plan, is greenwashing, the idea that asset managers are pretending that their funds are actually... ESG friendly when they're not. So let's see if there's some supervisory action on that. And crypto is obviously an area which is not yet regulated by the FCA, but is coming down the track in relation to stable coins. So we'll have to see what, what happens there. So looking at all of those objectives and the business plan as a whole, what do you think, Zoe, are the key takeaways from that plan? What do you think we can take as um, as people dealing with complaints and claims against financial services advisors from the plan when it comes to the FCA's focus in the next few years? So I think the key takeaways from the business plan is that the FCA considers that the overall standards of conduct are still too low and that consumers are not being put first. As a result, the FCA is looking to act more assertively and to test the limit of their powers by removing permissions from firms that aren't using them and testing how far they can go to warn consumers directly if they consider they are being misled about the safety of products or services by authorised firms. Where there is immediate harm, the FCA is also moving away from launching fuller, longer investigations and instead relying on tools that have a more instant effect. They are also investing in systems to enable better use of data to regulate firms effectively. From the plan, when it comes to the FCA's focus in the next three years, we can take it that, although the scope of some of these priorities might may change, they will remain important. And the FCA will continue to be driven to raise standards across the industry with their outcomes-focused approach. We can also expect the FCA to be ready to adapt and adjust their approach to changing markets and consumer choices to ensure that the UK is regarded as one of the top markets of choice. Thank you, Zoe. As you say, quite a lot to, to take in there. And also, perhaps the most interesting development over the next few years will be the introduction of the consumer duty, which you referred to in the new Principle 12, whereby a firm must act to deliver good outcomes for retail clients. So we'll see how much the FCA relies upon that when it comes into focus, taking the actions and realising the objectives set out in his business plan. So now we'll turn to Lucy, who we're going to do something a little bit different with today. Um, So rather than just covering one topic, we're going to go through two. So we're going to put a lot of pressure on Lucy to take us through two different things. So we're going to kick off with the British Steel Pension Scheme and the Section 404 Redress Exercise. And then we'll talk about what it means to the SIP market now that Adams and Carey will not be making it to the Supreme Court. So Lucy, final salary pension transfers first and British Steel Pensions. 
Can you remind listeners what is happening at the moment with the Section 404 Consumer Redress Scheme consultation and the various deadlines? Well, uh, so we did cover the BSPS scheme in our April episode of Money Covered, but by a brief reminder, the FCA are going to be using their powers under Section 404 to carry out a consumer redress scheme, which is requiring firms to carry out a review of all advice provided in respect of BSPS transfers between 26th of May 2016 and 29th of March 2018. So the current intention is that the review will be an automatic opt-in process, although consumers will have the option to opt out. The review would involve firms writing to all members to confirm whether they are inside the scope of the review, being those that transferred within the relevant time period and have not received full and final settlement, or they've had their complaint reviewed under an FCA-initiated past business review. And then we'll be assessing the suitability of the advice using the FCA's DBAT tool. It's worth noting that insistent clients can be excluded from the review, but they must be notified to let them know that they have been excluded. So the consultation on the review remains open until the 30th of June, so next month. We expect insurers and advisors to push back on the automatic opt-in process with the only other Section 404 review in respect requiring members to actively opt-in for review. And this was a change that was made after the consultation period. So the FCA are also consulting on revising the redress calculation which includes consumers being paid a lump sum for redress and a new tool being devised for the redress calculation. So in respect of the FCA's consultation on the redress calculation, we'll need to get responses in by 12th of May. So the reason we're covering BSPS again in two podcasts in a row is because there's been quite a lot going on in April in relation to British Steel Pensions and quite a lot of developments quite quickly. So let's first start with the FCA letter on asset restrictions. What did that say, Lucy, and what's the intention behind it? So, like you said, since our last update, there have been a few developments. The first development being the FCA are going to be using powers under Section 137A of the Financial Services and Markets Act to restrict advice firms that provide advice on BSPS transfers from disposing of their assets. So under these powers, the FCA was able to implement the emergency rule without consultation in order to prevent firms selling off the assets to avoid paying redress to consumers ahead of the Section 484 review. So the announcement was published on the 25th of April with the rules coming into force on the 27th of April, which gave firms just one day to prepare. Whilst this topic was initially mentioned in the Dear CEO letter issued just before Christmas, the FCA have taken a more threatening stance with introducing these specific rules. So temporary measures apply to firms that advise five or more BSBS members to transfer out of a pension scheme between the 26th of May 2016 and 29th of March 2018. The FCA have published a flowchart to identify the measures that firms will need to take to comply with these new rules. The firms will be required to complete a financial resilience assessment and report the outcome to the FCA by the 27th of May. If it's found that a firm cannot meet its BSPS liabilities, they will be prevented from undertaking transactions outside of the ordinary course of business. Firms will be required to complete assessments at least once a month and following any material changes in financial circumstances. The FCA's intention behind these emergency rules is to ensure that consumers are compensated in full for any losses suffered as a result of BSPS transfer advice. So at the moment, the measures will be apply until the 31st of January 2023, although they have said that this may be extended depending on the outcome and implementation of the Consumer Redress Scheme. 
So restrictions on assets for all firms that advised five or more members of the BSPS scheme to transfer. We then had the Public Accounts Committee who heard from the FCA and various advisor groups about BSPS and the Consumer Rujo scheme. What was said there? Last week, we saw advisors unite to share their concerns about the threat of insolvency with the Public Accounts Committee. Whilst the BSPS consultation paper estimated that around 40 firms would enter insolvency as a result of the scheme, the British Steel Advisor Group believe that the figure is closer to 300. If the advisor group's estimations are correct, this will put a large burden of compensation onto the FSCS, who will pay out where firm goes insolvent, and the consultation provides will be separately undertaking the consumer redress exercise. So the firms also raised concerns over the ability to obtain PI cover in future should the FCA and FOS continue to change the scope of regulations. There is a shared feeling amongst advisors that transferees are happy with the advice they received and therefore the redress scheme is not really necessary. The CEO of the FCA has reported to the Public Accounts Committee as well and said that some advice firms are challenging the regulators' assumptions, advice suitability, and they are considering litigation. So we're a long way away from the end of this consultation at the moment with lots of public commentary around whether or not it should go ahead. And if it does, the basis for it. And we're lots of pressure on firms as well when it comes to their assets. But that's not the only thing happening in the final salary pension transfer world. And more widely, the FCA has updated its consumer DB checker tool, which I think you referred to earlier, Lucy, known as the DBAT. So can you just remind people what that is and what's changed? So the DBAT is a tool comprised of 11 stages of questions, and it asks consumers what their advisors had asked them or explained to them at the time they are advised. So the FCA has just updated this checker tool, which the consumers can complete themselves, and it comes out with an immediate assessment of whether or not they think that the advice was suitable. What's interesting about the DBAT is it seems to be ignored by FOS half the time, so you have to question what the point of it is. But there we are. Also, moving slightly away from BSPS, we also had some news around P&O with their infamous redundancies not that long ago and the potential impact on the on their own final salary pension scheme. So what's happened there? What, in most importantly, the regulators been saying? So last month, financial regulators had warned current and former employees of P&O, including those facing redundancy, not to make any quick decisions about transferring out of their defined benefit schemes amid a heightened risk of transfers off the back of these mass redundancies. So the FCA, the pensions regulator and the money and pension service all spoke out after being concerned about the impact the sudden redundancies could have on some of the 800 former employees who may be seeking to transfer out of their divine benefit pension schemes. The regulators actually explicitly said that transferring out of the scheme was unlikely to be in the interests of most people. So it appears that the FCA is taking this stance to avoid making the same mistakes as they did with the BSPS DB transfer schemes, following criticism that they'd faced in failing to intervene at an earlier stage. So all in all these a hive of activity and publications around DB transfers and the BSPS section 404 as the deadline of the consultation responses approaches. So lots and lots going on in the DB pension area, no doubt will be a main focus of the podcast going forward. But keeping with pensions and moving swiftly from DB transfers to SIPs, so self-invested personal pensions, 
The Supreme Court has refused permission to appeal in Adamson Carey. Before I ask the question about where this leaves the SIP market, can you just remind listeners, Lucy, what the key arguments were in Adamson Carey? And in particular, where we're left now that the Court of Appeal decision will stand as the final decision in that case? So the, the case centres on the role of an unauthorised introducer and the duties owed by a SIP provider to their member. So two main arguments raised in Adams and Carey were that Carey had breached Section 27 of the Financial Services and Markets Act, which provides for the reversal of a transaction if an authorised person is carrying out a regulated activity, enters into an agreement in consequence of something that's said or done by a third party in the course of that third party carrying out a regulated activity in contravention of the general prohibition, i.e. this is where they do not have the requisite permission to carry out the activity. So the second argument was that Kerry had not complied with the Conduct of Business Rules 2.1.1 in the FCA handbook, which is a rule requiring any regulated entity to act honestly, fairly and professionally in accordance with the best interests of the customer. There was also a third argument made in respect of joint enterprise, but this was dropped by Mr Adams ahead of the court appeal decision. So not key to decision or how SIP complaints are likely to be looked at going forward. So going back to the Section 27 argument, This applies where a regulated entity, entity, i.e. the SIP provider, enters into an agreement, the SIP, in consequence of something said or done by an unregulated third party in contravention of the general prohibition. So before the High Court, Mr Adams failed to establish that the unauthorised entity, CLNP, was carrying out an unregulated activity. He also failed to establish that this should be reversed as there was no evidence that he was recommended a specific SIP and there was too much time between the alleged recommendation by the introducer and his agreement with the SIP provider. However, the Court of Appeal found that CLMP had provided regulated advice in respect to switching his pension to the Kerry SIP. The Court of Appeal also found that the introducer was significantly instrumental in the arrangement of the SIP, and Mr Adams had entered the transaction in consequence of this. The Court of Appeal also found that, as Carey, the SIP provider, knew or should have known about the unregulated third party doing something it shouldn't have, and it should have done something about that, or at least raised questions about the volume of direct clients. Therefore, the Court of Appeal would not forgive Carey under Section 28 and uphold the transaction. Here, the SIP. So moving on to the Cobbs 2.1.1 rule argument. The High Court looked at the context of the SIP's role and found that an execution-only agent the SIP provider, was able to rely on the contractual agreed terms with its customers and look to those terms for the purposes of determining what it agreed to do, and the investor had to take responsibility for their own decisions. Whilst there is a duty to act honestly, fairly and professionally, the terms of the contract shouldn't be disregarded. The Court of Appeal did not overturn the High Court's interpretation of the Cobb's rules and reinforced the position that the rules should be seen through the prism of a contract rather than serving to expand the contractual duties. Decision also reinforced the causation test when considering breaches of the SEA handbook, which in our experience is something that FOS often overlooks. So the Court of Appeal judgment will now stand undisturbed. So where do you think this leaves SIP providers, first of all, facing civil claims through the courts? So the types of clients SIP providers deal with are broadly split into two categories. The first being unauthorised introduced clients, and the second being advised and direct clients. To advise clients, we'll have an FCA-regulated advisor with the correct permissions to advise on various aspects of the transaction to facilitate the transfer of the client's personal pension into the SIP. Direct clients, on the other hand, will be instructing SIP providers in their personal capacity 
without relying on the advice of an FCA regulated entity. Occasionally, it transpires that these direct clients have been advised by unauthorized third parties who do not have the correct permissions to provide such advice. The Court of Appeals findings will be most relevant to SIP providers who dealt with direct clients and unregulated third parties, as they will likely face criticism if it is found these parties carried out activities without requisite permissions and little was done by the SIP providers to stop them. However, for advised clients, there's less of a risk of exposure on the Court of Appeals finding. And in fact, the findings on COBS 2.1.1 remain helpful. So the COBS rules will be relevant to all SIP providers in that reinforces the position that they can rely on the terms of the agreement with their members, which usually limits their involvement to execution only. So as you say, Lucy, hopefully before the court, SIP providers should have some reasonable and respectable arguments, particularly on COGS 2.1.1, albeit if they were dealing with an unregulated entity doing regulated things they weren't allowed to, Section 27 may potentially be more difficult, but the SIP provider may well be able to get the forgiveness of the court at the Section 28. So there we are with the civil claims landscape, but what about the financial ombudsman service? As FOS has a different jurisdiction to the courts, there is no requirement for them to follow the law when making decisions. Instead, FOS's jurisdiction is to make a decision that is fair and reasonable in all of the circumstances. Although from experience, FOS has been asking questions around unauthorised introducers and the due diligence carried around third parties and the investments made into the SIP, which arguably, to some extent, does follow the points discussed in Adams and Carey. So FOS has actually issued a decision in respect of a SIP provider accepting advised business. In the complaint upheld against Rowan Moore, Rowan Moore had been accepting a number of SIP applications from a regulated advisor, CIB Life and Pensions, in respect of investments in overseas property. So despite Rowan Moore seeking confirmation from the complainant that they had been advised and seeking confirmation from the advice firm that they had advised in respect of the investments within the SIP, the Ombudsman still upheld the complaint on the basis that Rowan Moore had failed to comply with its regulatory obligations set out in principles two, three, and six of the FCA handbook, as they said they it had not conducted sufficient due diligence into CIB and its business model. FOS went on to say that they should have been alerted by the large volume of high-risk investments and that Moore did not request a suitability report from the member to check for the investment advice, and it was unreasonable to rely on assurances provided by CIB in 2009. So FOS actually disagreed with the application of Adams and Carey, as Roa Moore had the opportunity to cease accepting business from CIB before the complainant approached them. So where does this leave us? There will remain good arguments in civil proceedings for SIP providers to defend complaints. And it should not be forgotten that Kerry won on the issue of COBS 2.1.1 and that the High Court found Kerry's due diligence on the investment was more than acceptable. Where Kerry fell down was the involvement of the unauthorised party and the fact there was a finding that the unauthorised party was conducting regulated activities. So if a SIP provider is facing a claim involving an advised client or a direct client, these issues around the unauthorised party in Section 27 will not be relevant. Instead, it goes back to the application of COBS 2.1.1, and so there remains respectable and largely unargued issues for FOS to deal with. It's worth remembering that Carey's High Court decision, commenting in COBS 2.1.1 and the role of the contract, was a decision handed down after the Barclay-Burke Judicial Review. So if FOS is challenged again 
regard would have to be to the Carey decisions and what they said about COBS 2.1.1 and the due diligence obligations of a SIP provider. So this is an area ripe for contesting at FOS and these issues simply have not been fully argued and determined. Thank you, Lucy. As you say, a lot of the issues that FOS deals with when it comes to SIP providers just haven't been fully threshed out yet. Because the Bartley Burt Judicial Review and the underlying force decision simply didn't have to take into account Adams and Kerry and take into account the law because it hadn't been handed down as a judgment yet. So we wait to see whether or not force is doing the right thing when it comes to its commentary around Adams and Kerry and whether or not actually the court might think something different of it if force is judicially reviewed. So thank you to both Lucy and Zoe for your time today and thank you for listening. RPC Radio. We hope you will join us again next month when we will be discussing the month's hot topics in the financial services sector. And please do click to subscribe to receive the monthly podcast as soon as it is available. Be sure to also check out other RPC publications at rpc.co.uk forward slash perspectives. Thank you to our guests today, as well as those behind the scenes at RPC who make this podcast possible.